This is Nature News from RSPB Scotland. Uh, male hen harrier just heading, just really slowly flapping and then gliding, just heading over the hill, down into the heather. Gone out of sight now. That's not a bad start. Not a bad start, no. Yeah, sorry, we hadn't even got started properly. Welcome to Nature News from RSPB Scotland. I'm Stephen McGee. And I'm Kate Kirkwood. And uh, that voice you heard is Claire Smith. Hello, Claire. Hi. Um, introduce yourself. Um, my name is Claire Smith. I'm a senior conservation officer with RSPB, so I do a lot of stuff away from our nature reserves with landowners and species and monitoring birds. And um, we're out in Perthshire today, near where I live. We are in Perthshire, and the reason we are here and in a place where we see hen harriers as well as lots of other stuff, there's nesting gulls over behind us, is we want to talk today a bit about uplands. So, uh, yeah, here we go. So, as ever, we start the podcast with our nature news. Uh, my nature news is more like a place than anything else. I was lucky enough to go to the Tay Reed Beds filming uh, last week, and I had never been there before. And it, it's it 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 is the UK's largest continuous reed bed. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yep. that's right. And uh, it is an amazing place to be in. Like literally immersive. You know, like the reeds are like way taller than you. And the other thing is like the sound of it. I had never heard a water reel before. And it sounds like a cross between like a squeaky gate and a frightened pig or something. It was the strangest <laughs> noise, you know. So, um, so that's yeah, another habitat ticked off. How about you, Kate? I have to say, haven't got a lot of nature news, and probably today is probably as I was saying to Claire, Claire on the way at walk up. This is probably the furthest I've been out for quite some time. And uh, do you know what? It's glorious. It's so nice to be just up a hill, listening to. Gulls. <laughs> the gull, no, there's lots of other nice things going on uh, other than the squawking of the, the black-headed gulls and uh, yeah it's just nice to be able to see much much further to the horizon. Yeah I know once we've been stuck in the city with Covid and everything. How about you Nature News for you? I was out at Abernethy last week and yeah just nice to see crested tit really see and hear crested tit I think you can never they can never not make you smile when they come in and they're so curious yeah and for people that don't know just describe a crested tit and 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 also why they're like such a such a why seeing one is so special they've just they've got quite a restricted range in Scotland so they're quite common in other bits of Europe but in Scotland they're really um restricted into parts of the of the Cairngorms, um, Strathspey and Speyside, and they've got this amazing big um, punky mohawk that comes straight off their head. <laughs> punky mohawk, it's like, it's, like, it's like a stripey punky mohawk yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and they're also, um, just like a lot, of, a lot of the tits, they're really, really curious. So if you stand still and, and have your sandwich or something in the forest, they all just pile in and they're all chatting away in the trees and, and having a look. And they're just so special because you know there's literally a kind of a, a line you cross in Scotland where you can see them and where you can't see them. Yeah. So. Well, it's not just about our nature news, it's about wider stuff as well. And there are a couple of things we want to let you know about. The first is actually some really good news, which is um, the, the, the South of Scotland Golden Eagle Project, which is a project which is involving translocating birds from other parts of Scotland where the populations are doing relatively well to uh, the south of Scotland where there were birds in the past, right? But for various reasons to do with habitat loss, uh, persecution, all the things that affect uh, Goldies, they had pretty much disappeared. Um, they have now confirmed that there are as many as 30 birds in the patch, yeah. which is just an amazing achievement. Yeah, and, and, and really exciting. And 
you know, if you think about, you know, being down in like the 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 southwest of the borders, your chances now of seeing a goldie are pretty high. Yeah, and getting higher as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so 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 that is good news. The, the the other thing which is kind of good news, kind of a bit more nuanced, right, is the Scottish government published its um, farming policy. It's the kind of a broad outline of where we're going. Um, as well, I would stick a link in the notes, right? It's worth a look at it. Um, nature gets a lot of name checking in that, but I think as ever with these things, what we are keen to do is to see if those words are transformed into mm. reality. Some of the early things are good. We've seen like progress on, uh, you know, stepping in to replace some of the things that the European Union was doing to support nature-friendly farming, and that is all very yeah. positive. But I mean, you know, from dealing with landowners and land managers here, there's a lot further to go with that, right? Yeah, definitely. And some of and some species and habitats do need just quite specific measures. It's really making sure that that detail is there yeah. and it's not lost. Yeah, but fear not, <coughs> RSPB Scotland will be in the right places insisting on that detail. So we're off our usual patch today. We are. Stephen and I have taken a, a little bit of a walk up a hill with it's Claire. A, <laughs> a little bit of a walk. <laughs> Serious, serious podcast work. Uh, and uh, we find ourselves in Perthshire. And we are, I mean, the reason we're coming here is we want to talk about mm. like uplands, right? Which is a big deal for us at RSPB across the UK, but particularly in Scotland. First question is first actually clear. Uplands, what's that? So uplands is quite a UK specific thing. So if you go to bird conferences in Europe, they will talk about alpine subalpine montane zones uplands um there's not really a good definition of it we can agree that probably about 55 percent i think of the uk is probably uplands um some people say it's the bit above the dike so if you think about where you've got all your enclosed fields and and things grazing and then it's that kind of rougher bit of grass and into moorland although also some areas of upland probably do come right down to the coast in scotland so a lot of people have an idea in their minds of what uplands look like but there isn't really a clear formal definition and different you can look up lots of definitions and they all list different elevations and yeah things like that. and one of the things you really get a sense of standing here actually right so if i do a little 360 from here right in front of me, well, immediately in front of me, there is heavily grazed, um, enclosed field, right? That yeah. I would see has probably had probably cattle and sheep in it, yeah. right? Slightly further up the hill, there is a uh, moorland with, you know, characteristic burn pattern that people yeah. see in it. So that is, that is a managed moorland, you know, mm -hmm. probably for grouse. Uh, looking around us, we've got little patches of native woodland. We've got big patches of plantation you know conifer plantation it and it's all jumbled together yeah. right and that is one of the things about uplands right it's both one of the challenges and one of the advantages of this landscape that it pushes all these different habitats yeah. together yeah absolutely and i think also people's perceptions of it so some people would stand here and say this is a really beautiful open landscape i'm getting great views it's great and other people would look at this and say this is a really intensively managed landscape and if you if you dig down and look and there'll be different tree species and plant species that are coming through but it's it's been very managed for a very long time yeah um, kate when you stand because like you were touching it earlier on saying mm. like it's great to get out of the city and yeah. be somewhere and be able to see the your first, my impulse, having grown up in Scotland, is to look at this and think, oh, this is a beautiful Scottish landscape. But there is something more than that going on, right? Yeah, I think my immediate impulse is, oh my goodness, open sky. <laughs> and I think that's definitely where, where the, the openness feels. But yeah, as Claire, Claire says, the more you look at it, 
the more you can see the human intervention. So you are talking about plantation, um, and so there's established plantation, but over to the right, there's new plantation going yeah. in there. So it, it's obviously being quite intensively managed, and you can see just how dense the planting is on that site as well. Um, but when you kind of look further, there's 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 fence lines, there's walls, there's there's human footprints all over this landscape, and I think unless someone shows them to you or you become aware of them through your daily life, yeah. I think they're they're not obvious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's learning to read that landscape, yeah. isn't it? Mm. So in terms of nature, Claire, like what is going well and what is going badly on Upland? In terms of um, in recent years, there's been a really big push on uh, bog restoration, peatland restoration and governments have put a lot of money into that so I think that is going well in the uplands um, you said earlier on about some of the changes to um, farming payments how that shapes up for uplands so maybe looking at less um, intensive sheep grazing and maybe looking at um, uh, having lower numbers of cattle and doing mob grazing and, and landowners and land managers are moving that way and also farming payments are moving that way so that's quite encouraging um, these even though the the planting you pointed out on the hill is quite intensive most of that is actually native planting so right. in an ideal world you know we would reduce our deer numbers we'd have natural regeneration we'd have lower levels of, of planting but actually schemes are are moving towards being um less commercial and less non-native and, and more native woodland so and also just looking around you can see some of the you know there are birch there is some some intact bog that's still down there so there's there are some some good things here that you could build from and that things would respond if you change some of the land management a bit i think one of the things as well that's really important to get across to people is that we're not talking in absolutes when yeah. we talk about trying to improve these places yeah. for nature so i think a lot of the time there's a perception out there a landscape is either for nature mm. or it's for people right um and and that just leads i mean that leads to like like zoos right that's not yeah, what we're talking absolutely. about it's finding a way for this landscape which has people in it yeah mm -hmm. and businesses in it to keep having those people and businesses mm -hmm. in it but work better for both people and nature right yeah absolutely so if you're talking about things like deer control you know you need people to control deer if you're talking about um different types of farming you still people need people to manage those animals to move them around if you're if you're doing your grazing in a slightly more more subtle way um so yeah absolutely and you'd be using people to to do some of the restoration so if you're looking at, at blocking drains and trying to rewet areas that's that's all we we need a, a lot of people to kick start these processes you know you can't just leave it because what you'd get is is dominant species that have become dominant because of years and years of different types of management yeah i could cause, cause mm. i think that's one of the things i've like since i've been working with rsbb for a few years i i guess i hadn't realized just just how active management of land is that you think of as just you know calcified it is the way it is right you know but it, but it's it's not like that at all no it's constant it's constant change it's constant working with seasons constant working with um uncontainable things i think we talk about kind of fences and 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 dikes and and rivers and all of that there they are borders to humans a lot of the time barriers to humans a lot of the time but a lot of times nature doesn't actually respect those kind of clear-cut yeah. boundaries that we set. We piecemeal everything together. But there's, there's, it, it has to be much more nuanced. You can't just keep, like you were referencing earlier, zoos. You can't just keep everything contained into one area. Um, and I think it's that kind of fluidity between the landscapes and the people that live in them that's really, really important. And I think particularly in Scotland, 
the further north you move as well, there's a lot of cultural things around people in the yeah. landscape yeah, and right. historical um, atrocities, I think is probably the best way of describing them, <laughs> yeah. that have taken place for for land management purposes and essentially money. And you have to be mindful of that when you're talking about reintroducing species or um, talking about managing the landscape. People are part of the landscape. We are nature and nature is us. You can't kind of, you can't isolate the two. Can't drive away to tune it. So come back to, but come back to the nature side of it, right? Yeah. In terms of species yeah. that we think are really important, you know, and, and particularly thinking about species that we need help, what, what are the big priorities for us in a place like this? Yeah, so, um, so we saw hen harrier at the start, so there's obviously all the, the birds of prey, there's uh, black grouse, um, you've got curlew, a landscape like this is really important for curlew because they use a really, they might go and nest down in the Mbai, but then they're foraging two, three kilometres away, so they use a really big area and they love foraging up on the moor and they, they turn up on the moor when they, they first come back from the coast. Um, lapwing, uh, you've got some of your rarer species like ring ousel, um, cuckoo. So we have some species that we think of as upland species, which have actually, because of climate and also because of other changes in land use, they've they've ended up their refuge as the uplands. But before they would have been widespread species, but they've ended up being in this this landscape because it's maybe less altered than some of the, the lowland areas. Um, trying to think, lots of the, lots of the migrant birds as well, lots of the the warblers and things that are coming through. Um, other waders as well like um, snipe and oyster catcher red shank as well be using some of the the lower wetter areas um yeah and you can see all of those just within probably a few hundred meters where we're standing if you came back in sort of april and may you'd see all of these species um coming through which is really nice to see yeah because like even little things like we come up here and uh there's a very noisy gull call maybe yeah. beside us right and 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 it was only relatively recently that I realised like how many gull species nest like in upland areas in in what I would walk past and think of as a field, like yeah. not a gull type place at all. But it shows you what an amazing resource these places are for that you know that kind of diversity. Yeah, absolutely. And they're all you know you think of so things like black-headed gulls. I mean they're feeding on insects, so they're they're using this habitat in much the same way as something like a golden plover might. So all of those things about having having wet areas um, and having all the the insects that rely on those and having safe places to nest they're using that just the same way as a much rarer bird like a like a golden plover or a, a dunlin or a, a green shank so yeah very much part of the, the uplands as well and gulls as well you know common gulls have undergone really big declines over recent decades so again they are retreating to some of these areas and it is where you you do get some quite big colonies that are way out in remote areas you know, away from disturbance and, and things like that so. Right, I've slightly sprung this on you, so I'll go first, right? But just to, just to finish off this this wee bit of chat about uplands, I think let's finish with one thing that's, that, you, that you can picture in your mind that sums up uplands for you, right? So I am going to go with um, a dry stained dyke with a male wheatier on it. Right, mm, that that for me just like good. just kind of like slightly flicking, slightly bobbing about, and then as you walk up along the path along the dike, it it goes all the way. You get yeah. to see it the whole way along because like for some reason they never think to fly sideways. They just always go up the yeah. dike and land in the <laughs> dike in front of you, right? So that so that's my kind of like that's my you know ultimate upland thing. What about you, Kate? Oh, it's tricky because I'm looking at it all. Um, I think little little patches of birch trees like down into sort of little gullies that often have a burn in them. That for me is, that's, that's upland for me. Yeah, it's that sense of like sometimes you'll, you'll just take a few steps and the landscape just changes completely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 no, that's so they particularly in the summer when it's all 
green oh, and dappled. Green and nice and cool and yeah, oh yeah, yes. Know, very lovely. Nice. What about you? It's probably black grouse for me and that's probably part of the fact that I live in Highland Perthshire and there are lots of black grouse around so I'm lucky in that I come across black grouse more often but a lot of the sort of early surveying I did for RSPB was probably black grouse dawn surveys so it's just a really evocative sight and sound for me and then when you learn more about the bird and, and everything it's using and everything it needs here it does need quite a healthy upland environment so it always makes me quite happy to see them. Well you can use all the various ways of getting in touch with us podcast.scotland.rspb.org.uk or at RSPB Scotland on Twitter and let us know what are your upland highlights what do uplands mean to you Now, a few weeks ago, I was lucky enough to spend a day with Ewan Craig, uh, who is one of the people working on the National Capricale Survey at our Abernethy Nature Reserve. It's an amazing day. There's a video about it, which I will stick in the show notes. Um, but uh, I always had a bit of a chat to him when I was there, um, not just about Capper, but about what it's like to be working in that amazing environment. Right, I am walking down a track in Abernethy. And I'm with Ewan Craig. Hello, Ewan. Hello, Stephen. Uh, Ewan, what do you do? So, at the moment, I am working on the National Capricale Survey. So, this is, I'll be out throughout the winter doing surveys in places like this, looking for Capricale. Right. Um, there are significantly worse offices to have than Abernathy Nature Reserve. There are definitely worse places to go to work. That's... Um, it's a real privilege to get to come out. I have to say that not, not every place that I come out on the survey is as quite as nice as Abernethy, but in general I go to some incredible spots and I'm incredibly fortunate to be doing what I do. What is it? Like a lot of people listen to this. Yeah, I'm, I'm assuming most of them like nature, otherwise what are you doing here, right? Yeah. But, you know, they, they probably got quote-unquote normal jobs, right? What's it like working in nature it really gives a different perspective i feel um just a different way of seeing nature and the land and, and everything that's in it it kind of shifts from being something that i'm perceiving to something that i'm participating in yeah um, i get much more tuned in to what's around and start noticing things that just through time and repetition that I maybe wouldn't be able to pick up on if I was just coming out for a day on holiday. This is old growth semi-natural pine wood. Um, there's, there's no natural, fully natural pine wood left but this is as close as we get here in Scotland. We've got the semi-natural because it's more or less been left to its own devices it for... Slightly disconcertingly, the, the tree behind us is creaking, by the way. I, I'm, I'm sure it's fine, but oh my gosh. Anyway, we are going to have a little potter about and see, I guess, what we can hear. So you spend a lot of time out in the forest um, surveying, but particularly for capper, right? How important is hearing to you? It's absolutely crucial. Um, with the capper Kaylee, often the first sign I have of them is, is I hear them take off out of the tree. And that's when I, I go and look at them. I'm also, as I'm serving for Cabricale, uh, I'm recording crested tits. And I always hear them before I see them. Um, sometimes at quite long ranges. Um, you know, they're small birds high up in the trees. Not going to pick them up from just looking for them. But because I can hear their call and identify that, that lets me know that they're about in, in the forest. And just in general, when I'm out in the woods, ha 
hearing and, and hearing all the sounds that are around me helps me build up that full picture of what's there that I wouldn't get just by looking. It, it really allows me to um, have a much deeper awareness of what's around. <laughs> Sorry to come back here, but deeper awareness of that creaky tree behind us, but I mean, let's move, <laughs> right? So Ewan, that little electronic noise, the, the brr brr noise, what is that? That is a crested tit, so one of the specialities of the pine woods. Something that lots of people come here specifically to see, um, but when you spend as much time in the pine woods as I have, um, they're just everywhere, you see them all the time, it becomes commonplace, but still just a really lovely bird to hear, a lovely bird to see. And that... You know, I'm still feeling my way with birdsong, right? But now that I've heard that, I kind of can't unhear that, that brr, 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 you know, I'll know that next time, right? Yeah, that's a really easy one to pick up. It sounds really impressive when you can do it, but it's actually, it's quite distinctive. So once you've heard it once or twice, it just tends to stick with you and it's not easily confused with anything else, which makes it nice because a lot of birds, you can't say that far. Now, I will pop a link in the show notes so that people can see a little bit more about the work that you're doing with Capper here in the Capper survey. But we have had a very nice day today. We have seen, we've seen a Capper on your Capper survey, yeah. right? Um, we've listened to some very crested good. tits. Lots of crested tits. Is every day like this for you? Not every day. I don't see a Capper Kayleigh every day. Um, oh, big puddle. But, in a sense, every day is like this, because what's great about this job for me is not so much getting to see Capricorni, although that is a massive highlight when it happens, but just spending that time outside, being in the land, being with the land, getting to walk through these, these places and and experience them. So in that sense, every day is like this and you know there's always amazing things to, to encounter. We've see, heard so many crested tits today and at this time of year obviously I'm out in the winter time. The forest can sometimes seem quite a, a quiet and lifeless place but one of the most magical things that, that I experience is when I'm walking along and suddenly the forest just erupts with, with life and it's this big flock of tits coming through. Mixed of you know, cold tits and great tits, sometimes crested tits, sometimes long-tailed tits. They just appear suddenly out of nowhere and, and they're everywhere and they just come right by and just sort of stand still and marvel at them being in the trees all around me like, like bubbles on a Christmas tree. And then just as soon as they came, you know, they, they move on. And I've witnessed that. I've, for a moment there, I've been part of their world. And so, every day there's this. There's always something different to, to notice and, and to be aware of and to be part of. Well, thank you very much for letting me be a part of that. You're welcome, Stephen. Now, Claire, Capper is something you know a bunch about right? 
Um, I, it might be worth just starting by telling people a bit about Kappa and why Kappa are here now in Scotland. So Capricalia are really interesting bird. They're the largest grouse in the world, really big, so up to sort of four kilograms, the males. Um, they went extinct in the 1700s originally from, from the whole of the UK and were reintroduced in Perthshire actually. Lots of people think it was in Speyside. They were introduced in, in Perthshire, not far from Loch Tay. Um, in the 1830s um, by private estates. So they were birds were brought over from Sweden. They were very much reintroduced as a game birds. The idea was really to kind of restock the areas and, and then have, um, have birds you could shoot again. And the birds seem to do pretty well. We think they got to around, people talk about this quote of about 20,000 birds in the 1970s. We don't really know because the first national surveys weren't until the late 80s, early 90s. But then since then they have been declining um, they're really synonymous with um, Caledonian pine forests. So yeah, they're an iconic bird of yes, that kind really of landscape, are. right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you're thinking about your really nice blabery understory, your, your bog woodland, big old granny pines, um, birch trees and things, and amongst it, you know, you can you can picture that bird there. So they're a, a really um, important bird um, for Scotland, um, but the numbers have been sitting probably around a thousand birds um, for the last probably ten years, and then we've been quite concerned through the last five or six years as, as lek numbers have been decreasing mm. as well. And what's what's so worrying about that? What's causing that shift? Do you think? Well, as with uh, lots of species and lots mm. of conservation, it's it's complicated. So there's not no one thing with capercaillie. There's a there's a lot of different things. So there's been um, changes in habitats. The habitat becoming uh, more fragmented. You know, not getting natural regeneration of, of some of these tree species because of deer grazing. Um, there are issues with collisions with deer fences. So we did a lot of work at Abernethy in the the 1990s, looking at how birds were colliding with fences and how you could use different markings to to decrease that. So all the all the wonderful sort of native tree planting and commercial tree planting we talk about, all of that has to be fenced, and most has to be fenced in Scotland at the moment because of deer, so that poses a problem. Um, there can be issues with, with disturbance, which was, means that they, they avoid um, busy footpaths and tracks, which again means they're sort of losing habitat because there's big areas they're, they're not going into. And there are um, interactions with predators, so there have been various studies that show that predation can be an issue, but it's... It's not a simple picture and it's not additive because predators themselves all interact with each other. So, you know, if you've, if you've got badgers and foxes around, then sometimes pine martens won't go into an area. Mm-hmm. Um, things like uh, goshawk will interact with, with crows. So um, when you've got less goshawk around, you've probably got more crows and, and vice versa. So it's a difficult picture. I think the other thing about, because I mean, we should probably let people know as well that, that there has been a big chunk of work done by Nature Scott, which is the government agency which looks after nature stuff in Scotland, um, recently pulling together the available yeah. evidence on this and going through very much that range of challenges yeah. that, which you just outlined and predation being really important in that mix. But one of the things that, you know, we need people to keep in mind when we talk about predators and interactions with important species like capar is that when we are trying to regenerate and improve places like Abernethy or places in Highland Perthshire or wherever it is for for wildlife that predators are part of that mix as well right you know there's no there's no point having a capar Cayley farm right that's not what we're interested (laughs) in right and and I don't know about you but the idea that pine martin for example are bouncing back and that you've got a fighting chance of seeing a pine martin yeah. out in a place like that is just as exciting as seeing a cup of Kelly, right yeah absolutely and that's a big you know that's a big success story and the you know and the same for goshawk and i mean very much the the rsvb vision and the cairngorms connect vision is about having a big large connect we should just area. say for people cairngorms oh, mm. Cairn, no, sorry but cairngorms connect is the 
big partnership of loads of landowners, public bodies, all different people involved in land management and policy and research and science all coming together to try and work on that massive landscape scale with a 200-year vision? Yeah, that's right. So, so it's, not ambitious at all? No, just, just a mere 200. <laughs> just, just 200 years. But a 200-year vision for that. Yeah, patch. so it's, it's, yeah. it's four landowners. So it's RSPB, Forestry and Land Scotland, Nature Scott, and then Wildland in a big 600-square-kilometre continuous bit of land um, and really trying to instead of managing all those bits individually you want to manage it as, as one big area of land and you know take take down barriers um, remove non-natives restore bog woodland all of that yeah, and, and yeah. as you were saying before predators are part of that yeah right? predators yeah. are part of that so we're really um, there is really no predator control that goes on over that piece of land and hasn't been for a number of years um, and interestingly the, the Capacali numbers have, are holding up so there have been declines across the range the declines across Cairngorms Connect are lower and our numbers at Abernethy have, have held up you know, over the last sort of five or six years so there's there's a couple of PhDs going on looking at predator interactions um, looking at as you, as you restore these um, predator communities how are they interacting with each other how are they using the landscape um, with each other which is really interesting and also climate is another thing I should have, have mentioned so there's also interactions with um, so when capercaillie chicks are, are running around before they can regulate their own body temperatures they've got to choose between going and feeding on little caterpillars on Blavery and sitting under the hen to keep warm and, and obviously as they move through the undergrowth, they, they get wet and they can get cold. So if you have a lot of um, wet dunes, that wet, wet June days, that can really affect them. And also if they're, if they're then weak or they're having to sort of feed more, then it can expose them to predators more. So all these things kind of interplay. Um, and the vision of Cairngorms Connect is that you can offset a lot of that by habitat restoration and, be, you know, try and, try and counteract the, the impacts of climate change. One of the things that we're always very keen on is what people can do, right? Mm, and and disturbance, you know, that that's something we get, as a, you know, particularly as a dog owner, Kate. Yes, definitely. A responsible dog owner, might I add. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, what, what types of things can people do? Because obviously we've heard steering away from kind of going off the path is, is important. Yeah. But can you explain why that is? So Capercaillie are ground nesting birds. I think for a lot of species, people do find it hard to understand that a lot of birds do nest on the ground and their only defence is to then sit tight or to abandon the nest. So if, if something comes through, that's, that's the only defence they've, they've got. Um, and so it is really tricky. Uh, you know, lots of people, I've, I own a dog as well, but really when you get into the breeding season, so from sort of end of March and all the way through to August, for Capricale and lots of other species, it's just a really good idea to have your dog either under very close control or on a lead and try and stick to paths. And it's really tempting, you know, if you're in a lovely bit of pine woodland that you want to go off and see something or, or see the nice bog or see the, the dragonfly or something like that, but it's really important just to, to stick to the paths because we have done work showing that Capricale can avoid up to 100 metres either side of a path and if you think about all the paths that go through some of these woodlands it's huge areas of habitat that then they can't use so it's an, an extra thing that's fragmenting their habitat and habitat loss. As a non-dog owner right but somebody who has been under control of children for the last little while <laughs> and also and also myself right I, I think the important thing to keep in mind with this is like these are essentially these are largely things we are asking people yeah do, right right you no know, and we have to look at like one of the big you know we are mm -hmm. here today up in this beautiful upland environment we can come for a wander here yeah. mm -hmm. and we can do that because scotland has brilliant access yeah. legislation which allows people to be out and about and engaging with nature which is what we want people to yeah, do we want absolutely. people to get out and engage with nature right yeah. but there are certain places mm -hmm. and times when we might ask you to do things yeah. because mm -hmm. 
we've all got a collective interest in trying to get things right for these birds and for other species that live there. And it and it's it's on that basis, isn't it? It's yeah, it's, it's saying to people, we 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 know you want to do the right thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Here's yeah. the right thing to do. Yeah. And I think you know, there's so if you are in areas and you see signs or there are ranges around, um, you know, it's worth asking them where you can and can't go and just heeding the signs. Um, and just, you know, if you think it's a really lovely looking bit of forest, that's probably what a capercaillie thinks as well. So trying to just stay to the paths. And there's also some there's some quite innovative work that we're doing as part of the Kengals Capercaillie project with the mountain biking community. Mm-hmm. So as well as obviously walkers um, with dogs with them, obviously there's bikers who sometimes also have dogs with them. And there's been a lot of trail building, you know, throughout Scotland over the last few years. Um, and again, getting people into really lovely areas. So what we've done is some mapping work with the mountain biking community, overlaying the Capricaly areas and the mountain biking tracks and a bit of funding to say well which of these could we maybe remove and reroute them somewhere else so we're, say- we're not saying don't build trails don't take your, your bikes um, into the woods we're saying you know could we just manage this and shift this a bit over here a little bit do you know what in a seamless linking together of the themes of the episode mm. it is a bit like what we were talking about when we we're talking about this upland environment isn't it yeah. that the, these landscapes have people and nature in them. Yeah. exactly and they need to work together and i think as well what you were saying about we're asking people to do things and obviously we have the fantastic scottish Ac- outdoor access code yeah we have the rights to be able to do that but we also need to take the responsibilities that come with accessing those rights as well so i think yeah, I think we're really, really lucky, but we need to know how lucky we are sometimes. Yeah, well, we are lucky, believe me, some of the other places I've been. Anyway, listen, that is <laughs> that is enough for today, I think. Um, uh, we will be back uh, in April when I think we're going to be starting to think a wee bit more about birdsong and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to all coming. that. Um, do make sure that you keep in touch with us. Uh, use the email podcast.scotland.rspb.org.uk or uh, get in touch with us on Twitter at RSPB Scotland. Uh, let us know, you know, your nature news, things you want us to talk about, what you think about access, uh, key things about the uplands for you, anything at all that you want us to cover. Absolutely. And also remember to like and subscribe to help others find us in the podcast jungle. Yes, absolutely. But that is all for this week. We will speak to you again soon. And thank you, Claire. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Okay, bye. Bye. Bye.